Welcome to Creedal Catholic. Creedal Catholic is a Catholic theology podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. If you haven't already, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Creedal Catholic is also part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, which seeks to advance human flourishing through engaging conversations and premier audio. You can find out more and show your support at patreon.com slash VPN for Vernacular Podcast Network. That's patreon.com slash VPN. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to Creedal Catholic. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode. And just like last time when Meg Hunter-Kilmer joined me in studio, I've got another guest in studio with me today. I'm sitting here across the table from Matt Kane, who is a seminarian for the Diocese of Colorado Springs. That's my diocese. And Matt's become a pretty close friend of my family over the past month and a half that we've been in town. He is, uh, I'm not sure if the proper word is interning, but he's, he's working at our parish for this summer. So we see him every day at daily mass. And uh, he's, he's become so close to our family that today, just today, my youngest daughter started calling him Uncle Matt. So that was a, that was a big step forward. But Matt, welcome to Creedal Catholic. Thank you so much, Zach. I appreciate it. I'm really glad to have you here. I want to hear more about your background than I know our listeners do too. I think one of the reasons I want to have you on here is because the world of seminary is often very opaque to someone who has not actively discerned a vocation before or has not spent time in seminary. I think so many of us go and pursue the married path and Mm -hmm. never give seminary uh, a full thought. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, although I think young men really should think about vocations a lot these days, especially. But, But I do think that there's a lot that can be revealed to us about what's behind the opaque door of seminary and vocation. So I'd love to hear a little bit from you about that. But first, Tell us a little bit about your background and your past of the priesthood and what that's looked like for you. I know that you're one year out at this point from your diaconate ordination, mm-hmm. and then and then you'll be a deacon for one year before becoming Father Matt Cain. So yep. that's pretty exciting. <laughs> it's been a long road, I know, and you're almost to the end of it, but tell us a little bit more about this journey. Yeah, uh, thank you so much, Zach. Um, yeah, I grew up in Denver um, in the suburb of Littleton up north and um, to a very good Catholic family, um, very devout and... Um, very good, good, wholesome people. Um, we didn't move out to the Castle Rock area, Castle Pines particularly, until around um, age 12. I was about age 11 or 12 uh, when we moved out there. And um, yeah, just had that Catholic foundation. Um, we were about, I think, twice a monthers in terms of going to Sunday Mass. Sure. But um, it still was there. It was very important to my dad. And my mom actually was the one who got all of us kids, our sacraments. Um, she's not even Catholic, um, but she knew that that was important and stuff. And well, your um, mom's still not Catholic. She's not Catholic. Oh, wow. Not okay. yet. <laughs> Almost. Is, um, she, is she Christian? No, actually, okay. she um, she's not baptized, but she is. Uh, she is intellectually Catholic. Her intellect is totally there. It's her heart that I think is lagging. But um, actually, recently this past week, she actually said she wants to pursue RCIA and things like that. Oh, that's so, amazing! Praise God! Wow. Okay. <laughs> cool. Well, you should tell her about Creedal Catholic. Oh yeah, I, I, I think I will. I think I will. It'll be really, really good. So well, that's uh, that's really amazing. I think it's rare that you find someone who discerned a vocation at a young age, coming from a family that wasn't going to mass every Sunday. Yeah. Let alone have two two Catholic parents. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know that uh, there were some early instances on. I think where priesthood seeds were planted. Um, but it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't actively discerned until the end of my high school. So what did that feel like or what did that look like? Was it you would have a, an encounter with a priest where you thought this is a holy godly man who has a cool job? Or was it you're, you were laying in bed and heard a voice from heaven say you should be a priest? Um, well, it was, it was kind of a, a plethora of stuff. It was a, a few things when I was a little kid that my dad pointed out to me later in life that really kind of struck me. Like, for example, he's like, when you were five, Matt, you really just got a kick out of the mass that no five-year-old should be, you know, having. And um, I really enjoyed it. And uh, there was something there. I knew early on that there was something about church that was very different than anywhere else on the planet, that there was something going on there. And obviously, being five, I was very easily distracted. So um, it didn't stick long, but <laughs> there were many instances of that um, being present in my early life. And even in middle school, um, there was just this presence that was kind of close to me that I had noticed that was really 
always there and never really went away. And um, it was always very meaningful. And so I always kind of had this sense that I would do something impactful in my life. I didn't know what it was. I had different ideas about what it could be. Um, But it wasn't until early high school when I really started getting involved in my faith when the fire just started. And I really became a practicing Catholic. I started really becoming a daily mass goer. And I still kind of didn't want to be a priest um, at that point. Um, But... I, as, as the high school years went on, um, God really worked on my heart and opened me more and more to the possibility of becoming a priest. And yeah, it wasn't, um, it wasn't until the end of high school where I was like, okay, Lord, I'm open to being a priest, but what do you think? And I got no answer from him, nothing, not even a nudge. And I just said, okay, this is odd. You know, um, maybe it is just me. And it wasn't until a world youth day trip to Madrid in 2011, where I asked God to give me a gift and I said it could be, I gave him two conditions. I said, you, you can give me whatever you want, but it has to, I have to know it when I get it and it has to last my whole life. And because I really wanted that permanence in my life then and there, because I was, um, there was a lot of things changing in my life and I didn't like change nor do anybody probably, right, but sure. <laughs> um, yeah, there were different points on the trip where I'm like, oh, that's the gift. Like I went into the Lourdes water, um, the um, healing waters there. They do those little, yeah, not yeah. baptisms, but dunkings. Yep. Um, and I just really received this profound sense of peace afterwards. And I was like, oh, this is the gift. But then it quickly faded away the, the next day. So that wasn't the gift because it didn't last your whole life. Yeah, it didn't last. So it okay. didn't fulfill that criteria. So right. I'm like, okay, that can't be it. Um I learned about Marian consecration over this trip, which was huge for me, but it still wasn't as impactful. There was some hesitation on like, okay, maybe I don't, I don't think this is it, but maybe it is. And at the end of the trip, I really didn't know what the gift was, but I was okay with that, which knowing me, like I'm impatient and I want things. Are we now. all for oh, sure? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and so, but I was so okay with that. I really had a sense of peace. Like, you're going to find out what the gift is later on in your life. And I'm like, okay, that, that sounds good. So, so were you, a, were you a senior in high school at this point? Or? I just graduated at okay. this point, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we got back from the trip and I was outside, I think it was about a few weeks later and I was outside. I just started college up at Metro state in Denver and, um, I was outside in my backyard, just kind of tossing a golf ball up and daydreaming. And I was actually daydreaming about priesthood, um, when all of a sudden um, I dropped my golf ball and it was pretty much, it's very hard for me to describe, but it was pretty much a, a voice kind of grab hold of me and kind of lift me up a little bit. And just, I heard the words clear as day, Matt, you're going to become a priest. And it was the most peaceful, tranquil, exciting, amazing, every positive adjective you can think of moment of my life. And, um, it lasted there for a little bit. And then I kind of fell backwards and I was just like, what was that? Like, did I eat something wrong? Like (laughs) what, where did that come from? And then my second thought usually being the correct one was the gift, right? That was the gift that the Lord is planting seeds over, um, World Youth Day, that this is what he wants you to be, this is what he wants you to have, and um, he's answering your prayer of, hey, you're open to it, and this is how I feel about it. And so since that point, everything kind of fell into place, and yeah, it was awesome. I still had to do two years of uh, regular college um, because my grades weren't very good, um, and seminary is definitely not... Um, Definitely not a struggling intellectual institution. Like, you need to have good GPA and stuff going into right, it. Right, right. Um, because they want to know that you're going to take the study seriously. And so I had to get all that stuff up. And then finally I entered after two years of regular college in 2013 and just finished my sixth year. So That's great. I want to talk more about the mechanics of you know how long seminary takes and all of that. But before we do, just a little bit more on that. I think the first thing is, what would you say to a skeptic who would say, you know, I'm thinking of someone like Sam Harris, right? The, yeah. The neuroscientist, atheist. I just read this book by him uh, called The End of Faith. Horrible book. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I recommend I, I recommend reading it because I think you need to be comfortable engaging with those ideas, but it's just, it's just not a good book. But I think a skeptic like him would say, this is clearly the manifestation of a subconscious impulse or thought you had. And that, that feeling of peace that you had was nothing more than, you know, a feeling of harmony between your your id and your ego or, you know, it, yeah. I think would use terms like that to describe that experience. What would you say to someone who responds that way? Well, I would just really question the, 
not only the motivations behind that, but just also the fact that like I haven't had an experience like that since. And there have been some very impactful experiences in my life, well, for one. And two, um, if you have that reductionistic sort of mentality, it really takes away meaning in just the world in general and stuff. And so someone like Sam Harris, I always try and I always question and think about like how how can you enjoy life, Mr. Harris or Dr. Harris? I don't know if he has a doctor. Yeah, he's a doctor. In okay, Dr. Harris. <laughs> I don't know if you, I don't know how you can enjoy life because there's ultimately no meaning or no purpose in right. everything. Everything's reduced to the physical, to the material. And it, it just doesn't make sense. It makes life too dreary. It's like, it goes back to Jacques Maritain and uh, his wife who came to that conclusion of basically following the Sam Harris logic of, life has no point. We should just commit suicide, but we're going to wait a year and look for the truth to really make sure that this is what we want to do. And they got to that intellectually honest point, I think. Right. And so I would just say, yeah, I would just question that whole thinking overall and just say, okay, I don't, I really don't think you can just reduce this to the material. God loves to work through the material and work through our physical bodies and stuff. But I don't think that like, yes, God may have been using my neurons right. to pull this on, but that doesn't really pull into the question of this being a God thing in terms of, like, it, it. just as much as Sam Harris would say, let's reduce this to the material thing, and it was just a material thing, it's like, well, still, even if it was just a material thing in my brain, God is still causing it in that way because right. um, of, you know, cause and effect of the first mover, of things like that. So it ultimately goes back, I think, to just the existence of God and the philosophical proofs for his existence because yeah. even the reductionistic notions, like, yeah, of course, well, God uses material things as well. And so even though I don't think it was material, I think it was right, right. definitely in the spiritual realm. But Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think you're getting at what should be a fundamental critique of ideas like Sam Harris's. You know, I think Sam Harris takes a scientific approach to everything and wants to say that there's a scientific explanation for everything. Yeah. And there's a scientific explanation for a lot. And the church has always said that. So yeah. like you said, these mystical experiences that we can encounter, these encounters with God, if you were to hook up someone to a functional MRI machine and look at what their brain was doing, we'd probably see those patterns. Well, there's some thunder going on outside. Oh, man. It's like we were just hit by a, a thunder shower. <laughs> uh, you know, we'd see, we'd see patterns, I think, that would suggest, oh, there's something going on in this brain. But that doesn't answer the question of what the first cause yeah. of that brain activity is. Exactly, right? yeah. Because I can't replicate it. I right. cannot, for the life of me, replicate that experience as much as I want to. As much as I've had other subconscious like things in my life that have been impactful, Like I can't, for the life of me, do that. Right. Well, I, I wanted to go on and talk about a little bit more about seminary. Before we do, I just want to say good on your parents for encouraging <laughs> you on this path. Because I think one of the reasons we have this vocations crisis is because people want grandkids. <laughs> well, actually, Zach, um, to clarify, early on, my folks were not supportful. Okay. My dad was kind of like a hidden uh, in the closet sort of thing, like in terms of I want to support him, but I have to support my wife. Okay, and, got it. You know, go with what she said. But, well, and it makes sense from her, her perspective, too. If, he, if she's not Catholic, right, yeah. then, I mean, I think that the reason parents should be supportive of their kids being mm -hmm. uh, priests or sisters entering religious life is that that is a higher order of life to which we should aspire and we need priests and religious to lead the church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you don't believe the church is what the church claims to be, then it does sort of look like you're kind of wasting your life, right? You're, oh, yeah. you're closer oh, yeah. away in a seminary or in a church and yeah, you're praying, all the, and praying well, all the yeah. time. Yeah. So, so I get it. I mean, from a, from a non-believers perspective, I, I understand the skepticism toward religious life. Yeah. Um, so I, I get it from your mom's perspective on that point, but at least your parents came around, I guess. Oh yeah. They came around after two years. It was funny. They actually gave me two years. They're like, okay, Matt, cause I was very gung ho, like let's go to seminary now. Um, but my parents were like, no, 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 go through two years of college, you know, really find some footing and God took them on their word. And, um, yeah, it turns out it was two years. And after that two years, they really got on board. And my mom actually, um, went to the seminary and she said she was overwhelmed by just the sense of peace. Wow. And um, yeah, just tranquility of like, this is where Matt's meant to be. And this is, this is what he's supposed to do and stuff. So it's time to get her an RCIA. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think it's, it's good that, you know, this is what I want to talk about next, you know, the length of seminary, but I think it's good that seminary is so long. You know, I come mm -hmm. from the Protestant world where you'd go to, well, I guess you could, you could <clears throat> potentially, be a pastor, have the title of pastor at a church without ever going to seminary. Yeah. Um, 
But if you're going to go the more standardized route and some of the larger mainstream confessional denominations, you're going to go get probably a three-year Master's of Divinity, and then you can pastor somewhere. And you'll probably start out being a an assistant pastor somewhere, so you sort of learn the ropes. And yeah. Then you, you know, maybe not, maybe akin to being a parochial vicar and then the rector of a parish somewhere. But it's just three years, three years of yeah. seminary, and then you're you're out there in the yeah. world doing your thing. And the the Catholic process, I know. Is a lot longer, and with good reason, because it takes a lot of time, I think, to discern these things. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it takes time to learn these things. I mean, oh, yeah. there's a lot of stuff that even the average parish priest needs to know how to deal with. Everything from, you know, mental disorders to maybe demonic possession and infestation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to obviously all the sacramental and liturgical stuff. To say yeah. nothing of the systematic theology that needs to be solid, so that you can do good exegesis and all yeah. that. So there's an awful lot going on. Uh, and you know you need time to discern all that and to learn all that, so that's good. But talk to me about the length of seminary and what the normal process looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, basically, the average years it takes to make a priest is about eight years. Um, it all depends on what you do after high school. Back in the day, we had uh, high school seminaries, and so that kind of sped up the process. I do not know. Um, that's the minor seminary that I've heard about. Um, or is that different? That's actually different. That okay. was in. That was just. It took the place of high school, okay. and it was really just like. Yeah, you're going to a seminary in high school discerning priesthood, so you're not dating, and this is all at a high school level. Um, And it did speed up the process, so you'd have people get ordained, I think, in the early 20s or mid-20s. But nowadays, um, the church has kind of moved past high school seminaries, and basically what happens is after you graduate from high school, you have a decision to make. If you want to go into seminary right away, you can, and you'll go to minor seminary, which is also known as college seminary, and that's usually for four years. Back in the um, 60s, 70s, and 80s, I believe, um, especially the 70s and 80s, uh, you could get a degree in something, whether it be psychology. I know different seminaries did different specializations, but all across the board nowadays, um, it seems like college seminaries, the bachelor's degree that you do end up with after those four years is a BA in philosophy. Okay. And uh, so after you get that, um, you've completed your four years of undergraduate. If you choose to go into college for a few years, let's say, you can transfer into college seminary. And sometimes those credits will follow you. So you only have to do like two years or three years of college seminary to get that BA in philosophy eventually. If you um, decide to not go to college seminary at all and finish your undergraduate college somewhere else, um, basically... You would maintain your degree, um, your bachelor's degree, and whatever you got. So you get a bachelor's then, of science in engineering. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever you want. Right. And um, then you would transfer to a theologate or a major seminary that has what's known as a pre-theology program. And what that is is that's two years of philosophy that is supposed to cover basically the four years of college seminary. And basically, at the end of those two years, for the guys who already have a bachelor's degree. They um, finish those two years, and basically they usually either get a certificate that basically says you completed the pre-theology program. There are some seminaries, I do believe, that actually do reward a bachelor's degree in philosophy just from those two years. Okay. It wasn't um, that at the sem- at the college seminary that I went to. So, and you went to St. Gregory in Seward, Nebraska. Yep, in Seward, Nebraska, Diocese of Lincoln. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you did that for four years mm-hmm. after my two years of secular college. Mm-hmm. All right. So two years of secular college in Denver. You decide mm-hmm. you wanted to go to seminary. Yep. You do your BA in philosophy at the major seminary, St. Gregory's in Seward, or minor seminary. Mi- yeah, sorry, mm-hmm. minor seminary yeah. at St. Gregory's, and then you go to major seminary. Yep. Where mm-hmm. you are now. Mount, Mount St. Mary's. Yep, Mount okay. St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, Maryland. Yep. And so after four years at major seminary, you get a master's degree, you get a... Yeah. Okay. Um, basically, uh, how it works is, um, so you'll do the four years at the major seminary, and that's exclusive across the board, whether or not you come straight out of college seminary or if you come in with the bachelor's, you'll have to do four years of theology, whether it's the with the pre-theology two program or the um, just the four years in and of itself. And basically you will end up with automatically after the end of those four years an MDiv, obviously if you you know, get good grades and pass, of course. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> Not automatically. Yeah. You got to do some work. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, you get an MDiv. Um, and then where I go to school at the Mount um, for the graduate portion of it. Um, since normal graduate school is like two years, since you're doing four years, uh, Mount St. Mary's um, awards and you can do a um, second, a dual degree program. And so you can get a master's in theology. And at the Mount, um, it's a concentration in four areas. You can get a master's in theology in scripture, moral theology, systematic theology, or church history. Um, it is different, different, uh, 
theology, theology, excuse me, that you go to uh, throughout the country and throughout the world. Some of them only exclusively do an MDiv for those four years. A lot of them do do the dual degrees. Um, also at the Mount, you can get what's called an STB, and that is a bachelorate in sacred theology, and that's kind of like Rome's standard of a bachelor. And usually those degrees are for those uh, seminarians who are going in to go on to further studies, whether it be in Rome or another pontifical university, basically to get a license or a doctorate degree, mostly for seminarians who are probably going to be priests that teach in seminaries or in other Catholic higher ed education institutions. Um, and so, yeah, so you can do all three, you can do all two, um, you can do, you can just do the MDiv um, at the Mount. But what I'm doing currently is I'm doing an MDiv and then an, uh, the MA in theology and my concentration is sacred scripture. Okay, great. Now, does every diocese have its own seminary to which it sends all of its aspiring priests? No. Um, most of the time, um, the dioceses throughout the world, they do not have their own college seminary nor major seminary. So what you'll find is you'll find, for lack of a better term, regional seminaries where, like St. Gregory the Great in Seward, Nebraska, they were a college seminary that basically had feed into um, different dioceses throughout the region. So basically, um, the Archdiocese of Denver sends there, our diocese, the Diocese of Colorado Springs sends there, the Diocese of Fargo sends there, the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph sends there. So you'll have all these dioceses, um, whether they be near or far, that send to these seminaries. And usually it's up to the bishop to make that decision of where he wants to send his guys. I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then do you automatically, as a as a future Colorado Springs priest, do you automatically go then to, to Mount St. Mary's for your major seminary? Yes. Uh, for our diocese, uh, yes, we do, because that currently is the only one that we're sending to. We do have one guy, my classmate, actually, who goes to uh, uh, Pope St. John the Twenty Third in Boston, um, but that is actually a seminary mostly for older guys, and that is actually a five-year plan. They got special permission from the Vatican okay. to have it only be five years because it's for late vocation type. Oh, uh, five years total. So yeah. Five years total. To eight. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was thinking five as opposed to four. Oh yeah. Okay. Got it. <laughs> so you go there for your entire formation yeah. for mm -hmm. five years. Okay. Got it. Um, well, thank you for that overview. Yeah. I think it's helpful. It certainly sheds the light on some things for me. Um, it's a lot. <laughs> let's, let's do some seminary myth busting if you're up for that. Yeah. Sounds good. Uh, I think there are a lot of misconceptions flying around about seminary, maybe, maybe proper conceptions too. I don't know, but I've got a list of some, um, myths or possible myths here about seminary that you can shed some light on, I think. So uh, let's look at my list here. Fact or fiction. Here we go. Number one, students at seminary are all nerdy and just pray every day. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with praying every day. Yes, or I being mean, nerdy. <laughs> very, very good to pray every day and pray all day every day. Uh, but that is not the lived reality of many Catholics, I think. Certainly not my lived reality. Yeah. And I think people think of seminaries as a place where that happens. So fact or fiction? Uh, fiction. Okay. Uh, mostly, uh, and even, not even mostly, but um, especially because where we send is because it's diocesan seminary. So it's not like a monastery, um, whereas a monastic seminary, you could see them possibly like doing a pray thing every day, but even them, you know, they take time for work, time for recreation, sure. time for eating, sleeping, all Studying, that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so the Mount is great and St. Greg's is great because um, they do have set times for prayer, especially daily mass, which is awesome. Um, but it is a place to just form you into a good man, man. And um, basically we need that extra time for studying, for recreation, for uh, um, eating and sleeping and uh, just that camaraderie that comes with brotherhood. So, all right. Here's a related question. Fact or fiction? Seminary is boring. Oh, fiction <laughs> by far. <laughs> I think this is another misconception, right? Because people think of seminaries as a place where no fun happens. You're just either studying, praying, sleeping, or eating yeah. all day, and you can pick three, right? <laughs> pick three of the four. Um, so seminary is boring. That's that's not true. Oh no, not at all. It is. It these six years have been the best six years of my life, Zach. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really good to hear. Tell me, tell me more. Why? Yeah. Um, I, I think the number one thing about seminary that really um, astounded me and basically surprised me positively was the brotherhood. You are entering into a worldwide, international, 2,000-year-old brotherhood fraternity, basically, that has outlived every empire and country and scourge that has ever happened upon this earth. And you will meet some of the most genuine friends and um, just gentlemen who will become your best friends in life. And you can talk to anything about, you can do anything with. And that's probably one of the reasons why it's not boring because you are 
you're going to school with your best friends because they really do become your best best friends, excuse me, and really just really just grow not only spiritually in terms of praying together and studying together, um, but just having fun together and having recreation together and really just that that growth that's there on a human level and a spiritual level. And it's something that I think priests utilize today in their own dioceses because of that brotherhood, that 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 brotherhood that ultimately Jesus established with his disciples. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more. I think another thing that flies in the face of contemporary ideas about young men is the life of chastity that all of you are at least trying to lead yeah. in seminary. Mm-hmm. And my own experience being in a college with a bunch of young men, I went to the Air Force Academy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, I would say that by and large, the young men of the Air Force Academy are not dedicated to living the lives of piety that seminarians are trying to do. I I can speak for myself when I was there. I was not right. Um, and you know, just when, when you get a bunch of young men in a room, there's just so many type A personalities and a lot of testosterone flying around. And I think it'd be, it, it strikes me as reasonable to think that it'd be very difficult to, you know, maintain a chaste lifestyle in that sort of environment and, and maintain your humility and all the virtues that you should be cultivating so I guess here's another factor of fiction. Seminary is full of just a bunch of sexually repressed men who are constantly in competition with each other. Oh, fiction. Oh my gosh. It is, <laughs> yeah, it's fiction. I mean, don't get me wrong. You do have competition there. You do have the type A personalities. Like there's a lot of things with that that you will find at seminaries. However, there's Jesus Christ there. Right. And ultimately his love, his mercy, his goodness, and us growing daily in the virtues. And again, that growth in brotherhood and friendship and that spiritual um, development that we go through really fosters chastity and um, just true, true, truly man, manly living um, that I find in the seminary and stuff. And again, everyone has their own battles. Everyone um, is going through their own stuff. And and seminarians aren't perfect. Oh, exactly, exactly. Yeah, else, sure. exactly. Oh, yeah, we're sinners just like the next guy. And but but it's really good because there is that sort of. Therese um, of Lisieux mentality. Oh, Let's keep trying. So oh yeah, she's yeah. she's wonderful. She's, uh, she's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, well that's that's exactly why I sort of juxtapose it with the Air Force Academy. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I did it. I did it deliberately, but I know that it's not a one to one comparison, right? Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. like you said, Jesus Christ is there, and in seminary, you have faculty and teachers who are trying to help young yeah. men draw closer to God and cultivate lives of virtue, and you have young men who are trying to do that and trying to help each other do that. And that's oh, just yeah. a different environment than you'll find in the military, for example. Yeah. So mm-hmm. so I can I can see how that would be fiction for sure. Okay, here's another one, a little more lighthearted perhaps. Seminarians speak in Latin all the time. <laughs> fiction. <laughs> as much as our uh, more traditionally minded seminarians would like to. <laughs> yeah. Um, we do learn Latin. I did uh, two years of Latin at St. Gregory's. Um, I would definitely like to... Uh, brush up my Latin because as sure, the years yeah. gone by with the studying. Um, but no, we do not speak to each other in Latin. Um, no, I'm a little disappointed to hear this actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we, uh, yeah, classes are no longer in Latin as well. Um, they used to be back in the day. Um, well, how, how recently back in the day, that would be difficult. I would think. Yeah, I think it was, I don't remember. I know it's been a thing, uh, but yeah, sure. That's amazing. That was that maybe with the manualist tradition. Was that in Latin? It might've been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Especially when Latin was more prominent. And sure, stuff, sure. So, yeah. yeah, that's still amazing to, to think about, though, because I think one reason why you need to have class in the vernacular is because, I mean, just, you know, any any uh, linguistic study will tell you that language shapes culture. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. in order to engage the culture effectively, you need to be able to engage the culture on its terms. Exactly. And yeah. to do that, you literally need to do it on its terms in its vernacular. So that's, that's crazy to me that it used yeah. to be taught in Latin. I mean, I get it, I guess, if you are wanting to get the best essence of the summa and so you yeah. read the summa or canon law latin. right yeah <laughs> so that makes sense to me but uh yeah. i think just to teach classes in latin probably a bit a little yeah. bit overkill okay yeah. glad they don't do that at least um okay here's one maybe this has been on the mind of some people who are some young people who are discerning a vocation um fact or fiction you can't leave once you start oh that is fiction oh <laughs> as <laughs> at, much as i would like at, at what point <laughs> at what point can you leave like when, um, when is it up until your diaconate ordination yeah it's basically till you till the bishop lays your hands on your head at diaconate even even though there are some stories and cases of deacons being laicized and leaving and getting married and stuff so it's not a you know concrete wall of, yeah but that is the kind of general like okay you are committed just like in marriage you are committed you've made the commitment 
and you need to own up to it. And so it's like, be a man, own up to this. But no, until that time happens, you are free to leave. Um, you are not enslaved there by any means. Um, you, I know guys who leave halfway through the semester, one third of the way through the semester, they leave the first week. Um, basically, it comes, it comes to just one's own individual um, conscience of like, hey, is God calling me to this? Is this something that I am indeed um, called to? Or is this something that I'm just, I'm actually called to marriage and this was a good thing for me because right, seminary right. is good for, I think, any, every man who enters, even if it's just a day because at least they tried it out. Sure. Um, but yeah, you can leave uh, as long as you go through the proper channels. Like it, it is it is frowned upon if you just leave and don't tell anybody, just of course. don't show up to classes <laughs> one day. Yeah, exactly. And then it's like, okay, where'd he go? <laughs> yeah. um, but basically like going through the proper channels of your spiritual director, your formation advisor and the rector and just basically... Um, letting them know like, Hey, I'm not coming back next year or whatnot. Most guys I know when they leave, they'll leave after a year's completion. So they'll leave during the summer. And that's usually a good time because then it's like, okay, I don't have to worry about classes. I don't have to, you know, worry about hauling all of my stuff back from the seminary. So that makes sense. Yeah. seems like a natural, a natural break point. I think that's probably the case with any college too. I think mm -hmm. people, people leave, they normally do it over the summer or over a winter break. Yeah. Um, okay. Here's another myth. Uh, or or maybe not. I don't know. You have to tell me. Uh, <laughs> seminaries seminaries don't care about science. They they just want to talk about uh, God and study the Bible all day. Oh, that is total fiction. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I had to still take general ed classes at my minor seminary, St. Greg's, and it was hard um, because I was just gung ho of like let's get into philosophy and theology. But it's like no, you need to take English and mathematics right, right. and biology and chemistry or physics, actually, even though St. Gregory's, I think does offer chemistry right now. But, oh, nice. um, yeah. Um, yeah. They basically want priests to be well-rounded individuals to really have a good grounding in the liberal arts and, um, really just to know each field, um, of science and to even, even if it's just a little bit about it, to have a good grasp of like, okay, um, you know what's going on, you know what this realm of science is studying and things like that. And then um, then you move on to the philosophy, to the theology, and um, it's really awesome. And, and language as well, too, because we do study uh, Greek and Latin and Spanish and I think Hebrew, but that's not offered right now at Mount St. Mary's. So. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's good and not surprising <laughs> at all. I mean, I think one of the things that people from the outside looking in don't realize about Catholicism is that the church has always supported... Mm -hmm the efforts of modern science oh, yeah. and the, mm -hmm. you know, the developer of the big bang theory of cosmic origin was a Jesuit priest. Oh yeah. Right? And the founder of modern genetics, uh, prayed the rosary every day. Right. So. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mendel, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, th there has always been a uh, wonderful harmony between the church and the natural, the, the, the natural sciences. And that's, oh, yeah. that's oh, a wonderful yeah. thing. So not surprising to me at all that the seminaries take those seriously. Oh yeah. But it's good mm -hmm. to hear. It's good to, good to have you bust that myth. So yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, let's see what other, myths do I have here? Um, here's, here's a general one that might just re require a little bit more commentary from you, but I think, yeah. um, you, you might have a critic who would say, or who would believe this myth that if you miss out on the college experience, uh -oh. you're not having a good time. I've heard that actually in my own life from a, from a friend of mine. Um, I, I heard that actually that. as an air force Academy guy. I oh mean, really? Yeah. Because it's, it's not a normal college, right? Yeah. Like you don't stay up till 4am partying because yeah. you have to get up at 6am to go marching, you know? So, uh, it, I think probably has a little bit more, a uh, little bit more of the college lifestyle than a seminary does, but yeah, it's not the same as, you know, the university of Colorado at Boulder. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, no, that, that line of reasoning, um, unfortunately is very ungrounded because it's like, I know a lot of people who've gone through college and have gone through those experiences and they have regretted those experiences. For sure. 100%. And, yeah. And the great thing about seminaries, you don't have to go through those experiences. And it's like, it goes to the whole fact of like, should you do something bad just to have the experience of it? Well, no, because it's a bad thing to do. I mean, you don't, right. you wouldn't hit your wife just so you could say, Hey, I, I know what the experience is like to hit my wife. It's like, no, that's bad. Don't do it. Right. So it's like the same thing with seminary. Like you're not missing out on life. Like I said, a lot of the brotherhood really, um, basically makes up for that. And, uh, you make the best friends. I know my, some of my best friends of my life are from the seminary and we do have parties. We do have parties on feast days and solemnities and stuff, but you don't have people, um, 
you know, getting into vice and sin of just like getting really drunk and just totally plastered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And you don't have drugs and all this other stuff and you don't have, you know, one night stands where it's just like you regret everything. And it's like, that's, that's a, it's because seminary is really trying to provide that godly environment, that environment that is true and good and something that should be done. And so it's, um, so yeah, so you're not missing out. I know my friend of mine, um, basically, um, told my dad actually like, Hey, you know, don't you, don't you want Matt to go out and kind of like spread his roots a little bit before he goes into seminary? It's like, okay, okay. <sighs> it's, it's just, cause you yeah. really got to know what you're missing. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Not yeah, much. I, I've never understood that, that line of thought at all. I had a friend once who told me that, um, he thought I really should go to a strip club at least once mm-hmm. just so I understand how debased it is to go to a strip club. <laughs> I was like, no, you can, that's, yeah, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Because if you take, again, if you take it to those extremes <laughs> of just like, do I need to murder someone right. to understand what the experience of a murder is? Or just to understand that it's bad. Yeah. Right? It's <laughs> like, well, no, you don't. It's like, <laughs> um, I love the idea of having parties along the liturgical calendar. Oh yeah. It's, it's so oh, amazing. Yeah. I mean, at a normal <laughs> college they're like spring break. Yeah. And it's somebody they're like Easter, the resurrection. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's great. Um, yeah. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about the, you know, being a seminarian in the age of church, a, a church in crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has been a topic of conversation in Catholic circles for some time now, but especially since the release of the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report. Yeah. I know that dioceses all across the nation are cooperating with various state attorney general investigations, including our own in Colorado here. Um, so, so good things going on. I think bad things coming to light, but it's good that they're yeah. coming to light, right? Yeah. Um, what's, it, what's it been like? if you can just kind of sort of comment on this a little bit, what's it been like to be a seminarian in this age of crisis? And a second part to this question, are seminarians very serious about dealing with this? Because as yeah. a Catholic in America, I want to know that the priests of tomorrow are ready to tackle this problem head yeah. on mm-hmm. and not hide it like their forebears have done. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, that's a great, great question, Zach. And I think uh, my experience of it has really been a saddened one only because you get this sense among seminarians of we know that our brothers before us have failed. Um, and we know that just with the whole abuse and the crisis coming up, that there has been just a lack of responsibility that has been there. And so it really breaks our hearts. And I think it breaks our hearts more than secular men and women, because we know how bad it is because we know the spiritual side of it too, with sin and the devil and just demonic attacks and all that other stuff that goes along with that. Whereas the secular man just sees it as a human problem. Um, and I think that saddens us seminarians even more because it's like, we, we, we know all that stuff. We know how comprehensive it is. I know that, um, I have never, um, encountered a priest personally, um, who has been accused of that, um, or have, has ever had an experience of that by any means. But I know that, um, the, uh, the, the analogy that comes to mind often is us seminarians were kind of like, um, going into a burning building that's on fire and we're trying to continue to hold it up and stuff. And, um, and I've heard uh, older priests commend us for that because they say, like, look, we don't know if we would have been strong enough to do that. And ultimately, it's the grace of God. But I think, like, us as seminarians, we're very gung-ho about being part of the solution. Monsignor Baker, our rector, um, for those of you who don't know, a rector is a leader of a seminary, yeah, kind of like you, the president you. of a college. Um, basically, Monsignor Baker has always said, look, guys, you are my guys, and we are going to be a part of the solution, not the problem. And so I think that's an, on the mentality of a lot of seminarians. But I know a lot of seminarians who really are so hurt by what has happened, and they really take it to heart. It's not just some like, ah, uh, it's nothing, like sweep it under the rug, like, no, 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 we're, we're okay, we're fine. Um, no, the, these seminarians, as well as myself, just acknowledge, like, this is a crisis, this is something that does need to be addressed. And it just it just eggs us on to do better, to be better men, to be more holy priests, and to really work on this. And honestly, I can safely say, Zach, by just my experience in a Catholic seminary, like, just it's one of the safest place to be. It's one of the safest institutions to be. And honestly, a Catholic parish today is one of the safest place for your kids to attend and to be because of what good holy priests and bishops have done to start to reverse this mess and this problem and put these barriers in place of, okay, let's, let's look at our screenings. Let's look at our child safety stuff, our child safety laws and stuff. And just by the very fact that dioceses are willing to work with these grand juries and everything. So, yeah, I think that's really encouraging to hear. I'm not surprised. 
Uh, but it's still really encouraging. You know, a couple of days ago, Matt, we had the reading from Genesis in which Joseph tells his brothers after they sell him into slavery, but then he ends up becoming Pharaoh's right hand yeah. and all that. Yeah. Right. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And as horrific and as demonic as each and every instance of abuse has been, it has been inspiring to see a lot of young people. Oh, yeah. Our age decide that they're going to double down. You know, they're they're going to join the church. If they're not in the church, they're going to yeah. to pursue a vocation. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. I just read yesterday, there's this article in the Huffington Post, uh, their, their sort of Highline, which is their long form magazine. There's an mm-hmm. article about young young women pursuing religious life yeah. more and more and more. Um, and it's it's really impressive to see these people. You know, it's it's sort of like, I heard lots of people um, when I was when I was in the Air Force, uh, lots of people tell me like you joined the military in a time of war, and that's really something. And and that was a little bit overstated. You know, we've been in like mm-hmm. like low grade conflict for a long time, but but I see that that same logic applying to people who are entering religious life now. Like yeah. you, you're becoming a sister now. You're you're choosing to become a priest now. Yeah. <laughs> after everything you know about the church, after yeah. everything that's come to light, that's what you're doing now. And so I'm really inspired by the the type of character that chooses to do that because as people like you, Matt, who are saying we're going to run into the house that's burning down yeah. and we're going to hold it up. Even yeah. if, even if we get burned and immolated in the process, yeah. you know, because mm-hmm. that's what God is calling us to do. Oh yeah. And that mm-hmm. makes me so excited to see what God is going to do in his church over the next 50, hundred years. Yeah. Because everywhere I look, I see a young presbyter. I know there's a vocations crisis, although I think even that is, is lessening a little bit because mm-hmm. of some of these, these desires that are coming alive in the hearts of young men. But um, it's really exciting to see what what God is doing and how God is redeeming His church, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, through through all this. So, so that's pretty cool. Oh yeah. Um, on that line, Matt, as someone who has discerned a vocation and is three quarters of the way uh, along the seminary route to the priesthood, a year out from your diaconate ordination, what would you say to a young man in high school or maybe in college who's thinking maybe I should be a priest? Oh yeah, that's a great question. Um, because I know that even me, like gr- growing up and pursuing this, like I had those questions of like, okay, how does this work? What do I do? It's a very human and normal thing to have those questions. So I just encourage the young men who are pursuing that and opening and 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 thinking about those things to not be afraid about thinking about those things. Like it's okay, it's good for you, even if you're called to marriage in the end, it's good for you to pursue these things, to be open to them. Um, and basically, I would just encourage them to one start praying more regularly, uh, really. Um, attend mass and Eucharistic adoration and um, just really start getting involved in the sacramental life of the church more than you already are. Um, I would also encourage them to talk to a priest that they know who they trust, um, whether it be a spiritual director of theirs or just a priest they know or their pastor, really just talk to them about, hey, um, I'm thinking about this. How should I pursue this? And a lot of dioceses will have in place um, good programs to kind of facilitate this discernment. Retreats and yeah, things exactly. like that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Um, and I know in our diocese, Father Jim Barron and Father Kyle Ingalls are um, the assistant vocation directors to our bishop, who is, who's our primary uh, vocation director. But both of them really have good um, a good sense of of different young men discerning and what to look for and what to encourage and what to not to encourage. And basically it's definitely uh, one of the uh, myth bus- uh, mythbuster um, yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, basically it is fiction that, you know, the church just accepts everybody who applies. It's like, no, no, no. The church will look into you and really look at your life and how you're right. living. And you'll discern the vocation and then the church will discern. You. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so basically um, we're very blessed in our diocese to have that available here um, and to really have that process process of, okay, let's get to know you. Like this is not gung ho as much as I wanted it to be. Um, it's not, it's not just, you're not going to start tomorrow. You're really going to take some time to get to know the diocese, to get to know the vocation directors and to really pray and discern this and really see if it sticks, really see if it lasts and is something that, you know, God really puts on your heart to discern and stuff. And even in seminary, it's okay for guys to be like, oh, I want to get married. Like, oh, this desire for my for marriage has just increased substantially. Like, does that, does that mean I should leave? Like, I know guys, including myself, will just kind of freak out about this. And my spiritual director one time told me the greatest thing. One of the one of the greatest things he's told me was, it's great that you have a desire for marriage as a seminarian because that proves that you're human. And if you didn't have the desire, we'd have a big problem. And so they want young men to really discern these things and it's okay to have marriage discernments in seminary and it's okay to have priestly discernments while you're dating a lovely young woman. So, um, 
basically to but be it, open. And, to and it's important things. to do that then before oh, you, yeah. before oh. you seal the deal. Yeah, right? whether because, it be marriage or nation. Right. Yep. <laughs> because because you don't want to be married and then think maybe I should be a priest. Yeah. Or yeah. be a priest and think maybe I should be married. Yeah, because, exactly. Because exactly. at that point it's sort of too late. Yeah. And to trust in Jesus because he will ultimately guide you on this path that he set you upon. And if it is one of his desires that he put in put in your heart, then he will bring it to prefer to, to excuse me. He will bring it to fruition. And marriage is a natural desire of every man's heart. So it's normal for that desire to be in a young man. So to yeah. not be afraid of that. And I love that. You know, when I had Meg on last week, we talked a little bit about discernment and, yeah. and what that looks like. And it wasn't strictly in the context of vocation, but I think a lot of the same principles applies. And one of the things that she said is that she's, you know, she, she told her own story of being a teacher yeah. and she loved being a teacher for, I think, four and a half years. And then the, the, the last half year of her five year stint as a teacher was just so, so difficult for her. And surprisingly so, because the previous four and a half years had been so easy. And she said something that stuck with me, which was, she's not saying that if something is hard, then don't do it. But if it's supernaturally hard, then pay attention. Oh, yeah. And, and I think that really resonated with me because it applies to discerning vocations, right? If you are going down a path, if you're dating someone, for example, yeah. and it just doesn't feel right, there's just, you can't quite put your finger on it, mm-hmm. but, but you're not at peace with it then that's a problem, right? Yeah. And similarly, I think if you you were in seminary and you're feeling some of those desires for marriage and you want a family, um, but but it doesn't disrupt the peace that you have, you know, the fundamental peace yeah. that you have, yeah. then that's, that's, I think, a good sign that yeah. you, you've discerned correctly. Yeah, and don't make those vocational decisions in times of desolation because that's that a good is, point too. Yeah, because the devil will want to hit you when you're down and he, like, he doesn't want seminarians to remain in seminary and he doesn't want sure. people who are married who are destined to be married to remain in a relationship so it's that desolation that a lot of people can look at and be like okay well is this a lack of peace or is this you know desolation and right. what's going on here and it could be it could be difficult i will tell the young men and women who i will encounter future as a future priest just like discernment's hard you're not go, it's not going to be you know patty cake it's going to be one of the most hard one of the most difficult things you do in your life and that's and, exactly why i wanted to ask meg her take on it because it's not like you just you, you, it, I mean, I guess it's nice if you can throw a fleece out in the yard and do what Gideon did, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's not like that for most yeah, or of Or have us. a voice out of, you know, the sky that just comes out of nowhere yeah, and tells exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. Have a skywriter come along and give you a message <laughs> straight from God. Yeah. But it's not like that. So it is hard and it requires, I think, all of the things you said, right? It requires paying attention to the still small voice. It requires yeah. Eucharistic adoration. It requires frequent mass attendance, yeah. talking mm-hmm. with your spiritual director, spending time in scripture, in, uh, in prayer, uh, all of those things, pursuing the heart of Jesus. Because, yeah. because like you said, he'll let you know, but, oh, you, yeah. but you have to be there for him to let you know, right? Oh yeah, exactly. And God will work through your own desires of your heart as well. So I mean, like, don't think that, okay, this is because this is a desire of my heart, I, I'm not called to it. Like God right. will work through those things. It's just discerning, especially with a very good spiritual director of like, okay, what are, wh- which desires in my heart is God authentically working through? Like, what is he kind of drawing me out? Because frankly, the seminary says, you know, to be a good priest, you need to be a good father. So that's, that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a really good point. Um, okay, Matt, this has been really, really good. We're just about out of time, but I do have one final question for you. We've talked a lot about seminary and we've done some myth busting, which is great. You gave some words of wisdom to people who are potentially discerning seminary uh, invocations. But what I want to know is how can we as lay Catholics better support our seminarians and our priests? I think there's the, the obvious one of pray for you yep. guys, mm-hmm. but the follow on to that would be, what do we pray for? I mean, what do you guys need? What, yeah. what are your daily struggles that a layperson can pray for? Yeah. Uh, and then if there are other ways besides prayer that we can help, what do those look like? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's awesome. Um, I would say, uh, sell your estates and give us all the money. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, um, I would say pre up, like you said, Zach, prayer is the most important thing, um, because we need it. Um, I know I need prayer 24 seven and I know I have plenty of very good, holy people praying for me. And so I think, I think you're right. That's the primary, primary, um, aspect of lay support of vocations is prayer. Um, I also think that um, donate donations in terms of not to seminarians, but in terms of to your diocesan or parish um, campaigns that you have here in our diocese, we have returning God's gifts. And one of the great things about RGG um, is the fact that a lot of the funds go to seminary education, seminary improvement, and seminary and 
um, uplifting in terms of just like financial help. And so, yeah, and so when when we are talking about the money there, we're not talking about money that lines your pockets. So that oh you no, can, no 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 yeah. no no no. This right. does not. This is this is yeah. This is support for the dioceses and the parish so that they can take those funds and directly apply them to different needs of the ser- seminarians, which is wh- whether it be care baskets, whether it be you actually have a seminary who needs money because he's in crisis, whether it be the bishop actually sending to a seminary because um, a lot of the times um, seminary is on the cheaper side for the seminarian because of the fact that the dioceses are the ones that are paying for it. Right. Um, so just having that lay um, involvement financially is good because it's supporting your diocese, supporting your new priests and having, you know, just that, um, that trust that, Hey, God's going to take this, even if it's a little amount and really apply it a long way. So I would say those are prayer and that is um, amazing. And just letting know, letting, um, getting involved with your seminarians and really, you know, connecting with them like you and your wife, Sally have done so wonderfully with me. Um, <laughs> we, we like you, so oh. <laughs> it's, it's easy. I'm glad. <laughs> um, but yeah, just having that, um, having that interaction with seminarians is very good because we're not all introverts. We're not all like, uh, don't talk to me. Um, and, uh, you know, we really want to just get involved in that parish life and to get and to know that we're supported. I know that um, one of our parishes in our diocese here, Ave Maria, they have a vocations committee and they send like care packages out. Oh, that's and a great idea. It, it's, it's awesome because then we get little notes from little kids and it's just like, oh my gosh, this is so cool because we could be having a bad day or we could be having a stressful day because of school or studies or um, just different things going on and we could receive a note and it'll just enlighten our hearts and it's something that's really really cool that we're very very thankful for i like so. that idea a lot so yeah. I, I like that as a third recommendation a practical example maybe you can form a vocations committee at your parish yeah and mm-hmm. actively support the seminarians by sending the little care packages and it doesn't oh, have yeah. to be much i mean like you said a little note from a a kid would be awesome i think yeah. even super encouraging because that's why you join the priesthood in the first place right yeah especially, oh yeah especially at the diocesan level you want to be a parish priest and, yeah mm-hmm. and help people on the path to jesus as this as the symbol to holiness so yeah that's really cool so prayer financial support through the diocesan vehicles and maybe form a vocations committee or join the existing committee in the parish Mm -hmm. if you have one. So awesome. Well, thank you so much for those recommendations, Matt. And thanks for swinging by to be on Creedal Catholic. Of course. Thank you. Best of luck. Thank you uh, well, so no, much. I shouldn't say luck. We're praying for you yeah. <laughs> as you as you continue on your seminary path. I'm looking forward to your diaconate ordination next year and your priestly one a year after that. And we will be praying for you. God bless you, man. Thanks for coming by. Thank you so much, Zach. To our listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of Credo Catholic. You can reach out. Let me know what you think of this episode. If you have any questions for Matt, I can pass those on. Catholic at vernacularpodcast.com. We'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.